may not always love you. But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. everybody and welcome to the Kane and Rince podcast volume 7 issue 310 it is Bioshock Infinite you can play along with the show our next five games that we'll be covering include actual sunlight then it's rampage to tie in with the new uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson movie following that it's Resident Evil 3 Nemesis after that Marvel Puzzle Quest the mobile game and then we continue our Final Fantasy epic with the third instalment in that series, Final Fantasy III, of course. And that is the original Final Fantasy III, not the Final Fantasy VI that was the American. You get the idea. CanaRince.com, as always, for everything else. You can get every new Cana Rince show a week earlier than non-subscribers for the paltry amount of just 72 pence a month, which is $1 on Patreon. That's 0.81 of a euro patreon.com slash cane and rinse you'll also get an exclusive monthly mini podcast and it most importantly it helps us keep on doing what we're doing and put in the time and the effort that we uh, we do as well as keeping up the production values and so on there's also a paypal donate button if you don't want to commit to anything on patreon uh, although we can't offer the show early if you donate through that we're just very grateful shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash cane and rinse for t-shirts and bags we also get a little cut of those of course and you get cool t-shirts and bags and we also have an amazon associates link on the homepage now and you'll also find it if you go to say the uh, the page for a particular podcast if you click through there and do your amazon shopping as normal we get a little fee for anything you've put in your basket and bought during that visit so that's all incredibly helpful as well and uh, if you could shortcut that some of you have done it in your workplace uh, we're, we're not gonna argue about you doing that either that's all good thank you for that sound of play as well is our other podcast every wednesday where we talk about music Games music, that is, and the games that the music comes from. Subscribe, review, and rate both of our podcasts wherever you get them from. Follow us on social media. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 310 are James Carter. Hello. Joshua Garrity. Hello there. And Tony Atkins. Hello. So there's an awful lot been said and written about Bioshock Infinite over the last few years. It's a show we've been being requested to do since it came out, pretty much. We've left uh, what we thought was a substantial (laughs) amount of time to let the dust settle. Turns out the dust still hasn't really settled based on some of the articles that I've been researching for this podcast. But uh, there's no doubt that this is a game that causes people to have opinions opinions we've got them Uh, we're trying to incorporate a lot of different opinions and uh, interpretations of this game in this show so uh, you may also want to check our back issues of the podcast that's 69 when we covered the original Bioshock 73 we covered Bioshock 2 and its DLC of course and on issue 140 we covered System Shock 2 we haven't ever 
covered the original System Shock. I believe there's a, a remake coming, so that might happen someday, but no guarantees. It's taken us long enough to get round to this one. Mechner from the forum, canarince.com slash forum, where our community has its say, and that can include you on any future show, says there is cut content that points to a possible idea that System Shock is not only a spiritual predecessor, but actually set in the same world as Bioshock. Maybe that should be universe or multiverse. There is a great video out there called Off Camera Secrets, Bioshock Infinite Boundary Break. Uh, yes, we are fans of the Boundary Break series over at Kane and Rince over on YouTube. Check that out. We are shown loads of different types of lighthouses that Booker and M Emily were supposed to have travelled to during the end of the game as they stepped through the many lighthouse doors. They are actually still there in the game, only they are cut areas which require clipping to get to, such as Ice Mountain Lighthouse, a Desert Sand Lighthouse and a Space Station-like lighthouse. The idea, I presume, is that these lighthouses are entrances to different types of Rapture, Columbia alternatives. The Space Station is of particular interest as it bears near-identical structure to the Citadel in System Shock, which leads me back to my theory that they are actually set in the same world and gives more credence to the idea that Ken Levine has written essentially the same structured story for System Shock Shock 2, Bioshock and Infinite. Maybe I should have put the spoiler warning before that (laughs) (laughs) revelation. Yes, this is your spoiler warning. We will be talking all about the story and the allegories and the politics of Bioshock Infinite. Uh, So you have been warned. So the game reviewed extremely well when it came out. Uh, 83 outlets reviewed it and it averaged over 93%. The current user review standings on IMDb, still 9.3. On Steam, overwhelmingly positive from 51,893 reviewers, although that was I noticed it was ever so slightly lower from recent reviews, but it was still positive. Uh, Metacritic, the user review score is 8.6 out of 10, so a bit lower. And over on Moby Games, the user score is... Uh, a slightly less positive 3.7 out of 5. Uh, as of May 2015, we understand that the game had sold something like 11 million copies. And around that time, since then, um, the game was released uh, free for Xbox Live subscribers on Games with Gold, free for PlayStation Plus subscribers at some point on the PS3 version. And of course, PS4 and Xbox One versions have been released. You can buy those right now. Uh, they're not uh, especially cheap. The collection's normally about the equivalent of like a full price game. The game, although I think it's fair to say received something of a backlash or certainly uh, a lot of conversation around it, even eight, nine months after release, uh, it was still awarded Game of the Year by no fewer than 42 publications, as well as numerous other awards and accolades. Which is actually pretty remarkable given Grand Theft Auto V and Last of Us was 2013 as well. Yeah, interesting point. Uh, and they made a big deal about Last of Us getting over 200 Game of the Year awards, so there's another 42 yep. somewhere that, <laughs> that plumped for Bioshock Infinite <laughs> instead, I suppose. This goes to show the, the folly of Game of the Year awards, anyway. <laughs> Writer Daniel Joseph and April 2013 said while the game is flawed it is in itself an important marker a waypoint in the medium's development the game attempted to push a boundary and ultimately fails but in the end the attempt to push the boundary is more important much more recently three years on how does Bioshock Infinite hold up written by Rick Lane for Eurogamer July 2016 Bioshock Infinite is a game that wants to have its cake and eat it and rather than accept its limitations rips a hole in the fabric of reality to do so it's gaming's loftiest and most spectacular folly a monument to the mad extremes this industry will sometimes go to in search of a better version of an idea already explored to exhaustion as I say opinions will be forthcoming remember sometimes we're quoting sometimes we're giving our own you'll want to spot the uh 
want to spot the differences. <laughs> Development of Bioshock Infinite commenced in February 2008, uh, just a few months after the release of Bioshock. Almost nothing from the demo that we saw, uh, or the trailer, I should say, that we saw at E3 2011 appeared in the final game. Uh, although at the end of the game, when Booker is confronted by multiple Elizabeths, one of them is the beta model of the character as seen in that first gameplay footage. This may be a subtle inference that even the previously showcased version of Bioshock Infinite with different game mechanics and designs is canon in another universe. The development team reportedly cut five or six games worth of material during development. Ken Levine has given a few interviews over the years since the release of Bioshock. Uh, in some cases, this is answer, answering criticisms and uh, controversies regarding some of the content of the game and also sort of discussion regarding the gameplay itself. Uh, obviously, there's lots out there to be read, but I've picked some choice quotes. This is from the Glixel September 2016 interview regarding the development. Ken Levine himself said Bioshock Infinite was so hard to make because the studio was split up. My business partner, John Che, ran the Australian part of our group. He and I were the yin and yang of the organisation, the creative side and the production side. It was hard enough to build Irrational the first time. We had to rebuild it while making this big follow up. The culture got so shattered it was never properly rebuilt. I don't think Irrational ever recovered from that schism. It made me have to wear both hats, and that's not my training. For you, it's an experience that you play. For me, it's the five years making it and all the things that happened while making it and the health problems I had during it. I saw a picture of me when we first announced it. That was 2010. And when I saw a picture of me after I did an interview on NPR when we shipped it in 2013 and I looked 10 years older. It changed my life in terms of what it did to my health and what it did to my view of making games and my relationships with people. Yeah, it's possibly uh, worth pointing out that uh, the original Bioshock isn't actually Irrational Games because they were rebranded 2K Boston and then pretty much immediately after the launch, kind of a, a part of the rebuilding, I think Ken's referring to there is kind of renaming themselves Irrational Games, uh, mm. taking back kind of that aspect um, of themselves. But obviously, yeah, that the split um, studio wasn't something I was aware of until uh, this interview a couple of years ago. So the game came out on PC 360 and PS3 in March 2013. A Mac version followed in August. The Burial at Sea DLCs arrived episode one in November 2013, with episode two arriving in March 2014. A Linux version came out in March 2015. And as I say, September 2016, uh, PS4 and Xbox One sort of remastered versions such as they are came out and just after that version ironically the xbox 360 version became backwards compatible <laughs> for xbox one um, and i assume now if you run that on an xbox one x you'll actually have an ex a, a sort of enhanced experience compared to the original 360 version the best version to play i would say is probably the pc version if you have the pc to run it still not too sure about the Mac version. On launching the game, Ken Levine said, If I could still get paid, I would make games and never ship them. I don't enjoy shipping games. I think it's kind of dreadful. You're exposing yourself in a very real way. You're saying, this is what I worked on. Now go make a judgment about me and my work. And that's not always fun. The real warm experience is being with the team and making it. So uh, our history is briefly with playing the game. Start with James. Uh, yeah, I was all kinds of about this game uh, from as soon as it was announced, followed every little scrap I could uh, and had the collector's edition on uh, a, a pretty kind of swanky PC uh, on day of release and played it through. I completely ran through this game almost as quick as I could, like three or four days probably I'd, I'd completed it in, I think. Cool. Josh? I was really, really excited for this game before it came out. Um, 
Uh, I played it, and at the time, I, I really loved it. That's not a spoiler. Um, my, my opinions have evolved, but we'll get into that later. Um, and, uh, yeah, at the time, I loved it so much that I pretty much started it again and played it again. So I played it twice within within the same year. Um, and, yeah, uh, and then the conversation happened. Mm-hmm. Tony? Yeah, much like the two guys, I... Um was desperate for this game. Uh, Bioshock, both Bioshock 1 and 2 are in my top 10 games of all time in my own personal list. So, yeah, the sequel to, to that was incredibly high. So I actually built a new PC for this game because I didn't want to play it on the consoles. I want to play it the best I could possibly do it. I even went as far as to get one of the limited edition Skyhook doobly dads. Um, oh, blimey. Like okay. <laughs> £150 because it was like, yes, I want one of those. I was, yeah. Uh, as hyped as you could be about a game I guess I was uh, hugely excited as well being a huge Bioshock 1 fan less so 2 although I do like it I don't I didn't have the same connection with it as I did with the first game listen to those podcasts for more details Uh, I was excited Uh, this was the year I just had a new PC as well and this was the year I was writing uh, professionally for a website and this was one of the earlier review codes I got so I played it before seeing anyone else's review and like almost every other reviewer, I gave it a very <laughs> high mark. Um, I think I did actually in my review, I don't think it's out there any longer. Um, it may be. I'm not sure. But uh, I was uh, I, I was keen to express caveats regarding the fact that I didn't think the gameplay was going to uh, blow anyone away. But I think I, I I talked more about how it was, you know, I, for me, it was greater than the sum of its parts. And uh, and overall, I had a pretty fantastic time with it. I've been back recently playing it on the same PC, albeit with a much newer graphics card, everything cranked up to ultra. And uh, and also, for some reason, I'd never got around to playing Burial at Sea. Yeah, I don't know ditto. why. Yeah, same here. So uh, we will start in time on a tradition, just like video games reviews used to do with the graphics, uh, the aesthetics, the visual design, the art. Uh, the emailer from the forum says Bioshock Infinite has a great setting, but never utilised it in gameplay or indeed story. The ideas behind the city in the sky and its design are breathtaking. I enjoyed the initial part of the game, exploring this world and discovering the brutality of the society beneath the veneer. However, post this 15 minutes, the game moves to a linear shooter with very few NPCs outside of combat. The wonderful design of Columbia then just became a backdrop that the player didn't really engage with. I still think even playing uh, the game now and knowing that, uh, like, probably somewhere between Tony and Josh, my feelings on it have changed. I think the opening to this game uh, and the the visuals are a massive part of that is stunning. There, there's questions about atmosphere, and I think in Burial at Sea, going back to Rapture with kind of the updated uh, look to, to that, I think the atmosphere works better in the dark, creaking, clunky underwater, but... I I just can't get past how striking it is to to have everything all all of the kind of uh the aesthetic that goes with being in the sky but also all of the bells and whistles around the um the political and religious uh, iconography that's there as well um it, it just it still wows me to this day that whole sequence taking you up into the sky there's there's uh seams in it like the some of the flowers and the the market stalls uh, the, their goods don't necessarily work all that well, and I'm not sure if that's a texture issue, but still, the the way it looks, I think, is is incredibly striking and it's bright and colourful when it needs to be, and uh, uh, and just yeah, really, really vibrant. 
I largely agree with you. I think um, if there's one aspect of this game that hasn't been kind of tainted for me as time has gone on is the kind of aesthetic stuff. Um, and I know we're, we're kind of primarily talking about visuals here, but for me it's kind of how every kind of aesthetic value of this game kind of comes together and blends together. There's one sequence for me that really stands out um, when you're first escaping um, Elizabeth's tower and Songbird is chasing after you. And just the sound design of Songbird itself uh, mixed in with kind of the the way they've um, directed the action, the way they push the player to see certain things, the way they compose shots, the use of color, the silhouette of um, of Songbird in the clouds, and and the way they do a good job of just slowly revealing that creature, and then the music on top of that is also fantastic. I think the aesthetic stuff is astounding. Like even today, with all the advances in technology. I think the art direction and the uh, and and the music and the sound design is impeccable. I think there is something to be said about how these aesthetic values kind of also uh, inform some of my issues with the politics in the game, which we'll get onto. So it doesn't get away entirely unscathed um, by stuff we'll bring up later on. But yeah, it's still like loading up the opening uh, just recently. It's still breathtaking. One of the issues I certainly had with the game at the time, and there's nothing to take away Visual design is phenomenal, and yeah, even say playing now, you know, five years down the line, it's hard to actually look at other games that come out and go, yeah, has has this been done, you know, thereafter? And quite honestly, no, that it's 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 really well put together. This comes partly down to my some of my issues. I certainly had first time around this game, which is it has Bioshock on the on the label, and I know we've had System Shock prior to that, which is a completely different design than than um, Bioshock underneath the sea, but just this being so visually different from um, what I was expecting, I, and I'd bear in mind I'd followed the game enough to know that it wasn't, you know, was, you know, dark corridors under the sea, but just this bright, colourful um, atmosphere and, and you know, bold colour choices and stuff like that, it made me feel like I wasn't no longer playing a Bioshock game. And I think a lot of that is just down to when you look at Bioshock, um, certainly the two games and even System Shot to a degree, well, and definitely System Shot. Um, they're horror games. Like they're they are you know vis- visually distressing, and you feel kind of cr- cramped in a dark environment um, because it's in the big wide open atmosphere with the bright sunshine and clouds and everything. It just lost that aspect of feeling like a horror game to me. So it took on a different guise. And although aesthetically, I think it's a marvel, it's not what I expected from a Bioshock game. So I've always and I still to this day struggle to reining my expectations of what I wanted from this game. If we were having this conversation back in 2013, Tony, I'd be aggressively disagreeing with you um, and saying like, well, no, that that's the reason why it's good because it's so different. But now kind of reflecting on it and having kind of played these games again and specifically the first Bioshock again, I think there's, there's something very cohesive about um, the design choices about the first Bioshock and even Bioshock 2, even though Bioshock 
Bioshock 2 is very much informed by the decisions mm-hmm. made in the first game, um, where like the aesthetic and, and the story themes and all of that stuff is all kind of branching off of a central theme. Whereas like for me, um, and this is the part where I feel like the aesthetics are slightly tainted, it feels like um, the different design aspects of this game aren't cohesive they're not like in isolation i can look at the aesthetics and go wow astounding Mm -hmm. but when i see how it connects to the narrative and how it connects to the gameplay and how it connects to everything it's not it's like a puzzle piece that i have to slam in to make work if that makes sense it's it doesn't it doesn't work to um convey um it well it does but it's not it's not as elegant <laughs> it conveys theme but it's not as elegantly intertwined with everything else that's going on in the game as uh, as is the case with BioShock 1 and 2 this aesthetic forms the story that we're playing in at this point of time and obviously it, it travels backwards and forwards but if i think of rapture i think of i can connect to how this world was built and why it was built and why the single ideal of a man was building it and under and all that it just yeah. it feels like yeah. you know and i've read the book prior to that and you know i understand how like physically it was made under the sea and they sell I mean, through all the audio you know um, logs and stuff in the actual game they sell that really well in columbia yeah a floating city at the time period and i understand the, the quantum physics and all the stuff and the reasons we have tears and stuff so it makes a narrative sense why it exists but I never believed in the Comstock dream of getting this city and being part of the, yeah. the government and selling. Like to me, it's less of a personal story. It's this kind of flight of fancy, and that probably plays fantastically into the narrative. But it it made it the actual being in the city less interesting, just as a kind of bystander working your way through it. It 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 never had that personal you know, connection like I did with Rapture. I felt like I was part of that fabric of that seam of underground society where I I felt like I was just a visitor. You've kind of stumbled into what it was going to be my central argument (laughs) uh, when comparing comparing the, but like just like with, with Bioshock Infinite, um, I I feel like you're right. Um, There isn't that kind of feeling that it's all built, uh, towards the same kind of purpose. Like, everything in Rapture is informed by objectivism. Like, everything that comes out of, like, the want to be kind of separated from the rest of the world comes out of that objectivist idea of being your own man and going out into the world and, and building life for yourself. And all the horrors that come out of Rapture, like the uh, the lack of morality of the science, all of that is informed by objectivism. It feels like everything kind of naturally grows out of that political idea mm-hmm. at the centre of uh, Rapture. Whereas with Bioshock Infinite, it's like we're we're mushing um, uh, dimensional travel onto nationalism and racism. We're mushing this art aesthetic onto it. It's just, it's a lot of ideas that are, that are great. They're, they're great ideas to explore, but they're not fitting together. As we've already really touched upon intertwined with the aesthetic is the sound um, and yeah, some pretty striking music and use of music 
Uh, Gary Scheiman is the composer of the score, but then you have Jim Bonney who works on the additional score, which includes a lot of the things like the jingles for the machines and uh, sort of incidental tunes that aren't actual uh, soundtrack, but are diegetic things that you hear in the world and whatever else. And then, of course, uh, you have famously the anachronistic songs in the game, uh, the story being that um, Albert Fink has... Uh, basically heard these tunes through the through the tears from uh, music from the 80s and these were arranged by Scott Bradley who uh, later formed the band Postmodern Jukebox which uh, as you might expect focuses on performing contemporary songs in uh, various styles often older styles he actually appears in the game as uh, as Albert Fink brother of Jeremiah uh, his dead body can be found in Emporia near a tear where you can hear Cindy Lauper's original version of Ju- Girls Just Want to Have Fun Mechner again from the forum says Bioshock Infinite's use of music is possibly one of the most original and thought-provoking uses of music in a medium. Jeremiah Fink in the game uses the tears that are around Columbia to listen to music from the future and other dimensions, then steals and adapts it to the style of the time in which Bioshock Infinite takes place. It sets up the power of tears very early on in the game, often shadowing what's happening at that moment in the game, and gives a slight foreshadowing uh, to how the tears can be used. On first entering Columbia, you are graced with a gorgeous barbershop rendition of Brian Wilson's God Only Knows. When I first played Bioshock Infinite, I thought nothing of it other than it was a bizarre choice of licensed music in the game. But as you go on, you hear more old time renditions of modern popular music throughout the ages, such as pipe organ version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun at the Beach, as Elizabeth dances on the dock enjoying freedom for the first time. Later, a young poor girl sings a soulful gospel tinged version of Fortunate Son as a revolution war is happening around the characters bearing similarity to uses of music in the Vietnam War. It is a truly unique use of music and bears talking about. Finding the easy-to-miss audio log of Jeremiah Fink in the later half of the game, for me, was one of the coolest discoveries, which also really helped me wrap my brain around the tears and dimension hopping. Uh, so, Josh, you mentioned the the, the the sound for the songbird. I'd say that's uh, one striking element, but uh, the sound design as a whole? The sound design is impeccable, um, not only for, you know, creatures like the songbird, but um, we're going to talk about gameplay in a minute, but like mm-hmm. the gun, the guns as well sound really good, which is mm-hmm. an important thing for me. Um, yes. the, the use, I think the thing that really strikes me is the use of music cues um, with interactivity. Um, when you strike an enemy um, and you kind of hold down the melee button to kind of commit to this animation there's a little musical cue that's added to the soundtrack in the background Mm. Mm. and there's lots of stuff like that there's a real like um attention pay to um having the soundscape react to the player's actions which is you know just enhances that feeling of being on this kind of uh, kind of epic romp because like you feel like your actions actually impact the environment that you're you're interacting with yes it, it's it's excellent i just think it really adds to that off-kilter atmosphere like the the version of every everybody wants to rule the world yes, that you hear yeah. just and it, and it makes so so much sense in a way and and obviously you know it's quite on the nose in terms of um being you know yeah lyrically lyrically and things like that but i, I, th- but, I think yeah, they it, just become much more uh sort of tone setting uh, after a, yeah. after that yeah, first yeah. one, uh, and then when kind of the revelations about what the tears are kind of come to fruition, I genuinely think that that first moment when the barbershop yes. quartet floats in on an airship was—I I remember when I still remember very clearly that when that first happened, and I was I was already still enraptured, pardon me, by uh, <laughs> that that opening sequence, 
um, of being launched up into the the city in the sky, and then to come out and you know a few few minutes later be serenaded by that, it was yeah, it was one of the most remarkable sequences. It, it is kind of like what you hear people say about uh, going to like Disney World or Disneyland for the first time, walking in the sense of wonder at everything. But uh, what I will say is one of the articles um, that I know uh, Josh has sort of pointed towards as being, uh, you know, sort of expressing uh, concerns that he also feels about the politics of the game. One of the things I will say is that I think the that opening sequence, the aesthetic, that article uh, sort of presupposes that the idea is that you find it all very, you know, aesthetically beautiful and like uh, a utopian kind of ideal that it's actually working. But I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't feel that at all. I was on edge immediately. Yeah. I knew this place was a creepy facade. <laughs> yeah. I felt like I feel when I go into a church in real life, which is not good. And um, so, I, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think you're supposed to think, oh, this is wonderful, this place. <laughs> so on to the gameplay, which I, I would venture to say probably before talk of the story and uh, the politics thereof uh, was possibly the first thing that got some people talking mm -hmm. you know in a in a in a sort of emperor's new clothes fashion and as i say i definitely alluded to this in my own review i'm sure other reviewers did that if there was an element and i think this probably goes for the previous bioshock as well if there was an element that was perhaps less kind of outstanding it was the actual moment to moment there's still a lot of rummaging through bins and <laughs> eating and smoking random cigarettes and drinking bottles that are lying around which which i think all that stuff does rather play against this rather grand and and exciting setting but uh, as lee alexander said in her kotaku piece on the game in april 2013 the guns are tuned beautifully the vigors are so cool but they're a means to an end if i'm going to entertain myself with weapons and vigors i need coins salt the world glitters madly with them they're every where it's not long before I stop seeing Columbia and start seeing only levels to be strip mined chasing the blink. <laughs> My revolution is a mad jangle of coin clutching and cake crunching. I no longer care to listen to the voxophones. I don't hear what Elizabeth is saying to me. Kaching crunch hiss the clunk of objectives and ill-timed interface intrusions. People yell things at me as they assault me, but I haven't got the time for it. I've never sprinted so much in a shooter as I sprinted in this one. I just want to keep it moving. If I stop, I realize I don't want to play anymore. There's something to that, though, but I, I think that stems back to the original Bioshock games as well. I I absolutely poured over every single thing that I could pull a, a single coin or you know a pet bar out of or whatever it might yeah. be, um, and I still do to this day when I go back and and replay yeah. the, the original <laughs> games. I want to find everything, uh, but that doesn't extend to not listening to the voxophones. Um, no. I absolutely would if I thought I needed to stand still and listen to those because I, I went out of my way to get them and I knew that there was going to be a mm. lot of backstory hidden in those. What well, is one of those weird mechanical things where you're doing it and on some level you're enjoying it because of the those little, you know, hits of dopamine. But actually, if you think, if you st step back and think about it, not only is it pointless, but it's also, uh, it's also absurd. Well, and quite often because they don't allow you to, to sort through stuff. So say you open the trash can and you got, some health, some coins, and whatever, so ammo. It's not like you can say, I'll just leave the health there, I'll not come back to it. It's take all or leave as well. Take all. Even though right. my health is full, I'm going to eat the health yeah. anyway. So it's just... I want the so dollars. all that actually, by having it... I mean, maybe they didn't want you to micromanage it, but actually all that happens is you just go acceptable to everything. Even if it's like... Of course you do. It might yeah. make your health a little bit and you're even more... I can replenish that in like two seconds anyway. Not a problem. So you end up just hitting 
everything consume everything more, pick up everything more cigarettes more cigarettes. even on 1999 <laughs> mode that's not here or there although um, yeah cigarettes and alcohol sorry um, I yeah. did end yes. up leaving because of the plus minus I just didn't bother with if I had the yeah, choice yeah. But, I left a little drugs lying around but yeah so. I, I just but um, it actually kind of comes to a head in Burial at Sea I found where you're opening some uh, bins or containers and they've got money and then a necklace that's just money now, all right, yeah, it, it's interesting that there's different items there, but that's all just money. Yeah. Why is it? It's, why is it dressed up as I'm getting three or four different things? They've changed the health system back to something closer to the original Bioshock, yes. appropriately for Rapture, but actually it seemed like they wanted you to have some yeah. control over your rather than having the regenerating yeah, shield you've yeah. actually got the that was only in part two though in part one it was sure. the same because you yeah, were, you were point. so combat is primarily what i have based my opinion on this game over the last okay. five years um mm-hmm. i did not like the combat hmm. much at all um playing for it first time and once again it plays into talking about what i was saying about aesthetically what i expect from bioshock combat um previously is that you're in a relatively confined environment because obviously you're in a underwater compartments and not very big play spaces to actually be in. Mm. So you've normally got one or two enemies to um, deal with and quite often it's, well, what combination of plasmids can I, you know, electrocute the water on the ground to have an effect and that gives me some time. And things in the environment seem like they have a real impact on you. If you mess up that combo, there's a very real chance that you can get quite seriously hurt they, they feel like the splicers are, are deadly people in Colombia it feels it felt the opposite to me so um, because Colombia is up in the sky and it's bright and look you know it's the symbolism of God in the clouds it's wow that's really obvious but okay and it's you've got these big play arenas and humans themselves aren't as frightening as splicers I mean yes they've got guns but okay like splicers you can you know, shoot bullets and they don't feel it. They're just going to keep on coming at you. Um, and because you have these big environments, your gameplay changes. So I found myself with guys shooting me from sniper rifles from across a map that I couldn't actually interact with or kill unless I had a sniper rifle personally. And I found that like, okay, well, that's not really what Bioshock has been about. And neither has the, the, the System Shock game has been about that. Now, okay, this is a game in its own guise. So, you know, I can't just say, well, it's not the Bioshock game I wanted. So, First time round, I played through the game, and I think I just played it on normal settings and pretty much barrowed for it in 24, 48 hours because I was that excited for it. Didn't really have that much good to say coming back from the combat. It's just like, okay, well, it's it has elements of the Bioshock, you know, unless it's Vigors versus Plasmids, and it and it has, you know, weapons, and some of those stuff, like the, the shock powers feel all, all but identical, but other powers don't. So it feels like it's, it's a mix-up, and we know, understand now why, because of the, the split universes. But it, I never felt engaged in the way that I did within the original Bioshock games. This time around, because I had that experience, I really wanted to play the game. So there's a there's a mode that's called 1999 mode, and it's basically essentially playing the game on hard. Um, mm-hmm. I added the added difficulty of trying to get an achievement where I couldn't even use the vending machines to get rehealth or new ammo or anything. So everything was picked up off the ground or scavenged. The reason I did that was I wanted to you basically view the combat exactly how I guess the developers would really want you to experience and actually take time to set up those traps which I love doing so much in the Bioshock and one of the few people that, that love the, the trap uh, scenarios in, in Bioshock mm. 2 for instance I love that DLC mm. and actually it still had very little benefit uh, I still found myself being frustrated the way that the game played as I did five years ago I still didn't enjoy the Vigors 
as much as I enjoyed the plasmids and I still found the shooting fine, but not engaging the way that I personally would want uh, a new Bioshock game to feel. They promise so much with this game with their own hype. But if you put that stuff out there, you can't expect people then to not look at it and say, well, the product you delivered is vastly different short. from the yeah. one that you promised. But some of the gameplay scenarios that they, they showed back in 2010, I think that trailer was. I mean, that's that's an advert. I, I don't think it is harsh to, to criticise a developer for their, showing you something and then falling short. Like I think that's reasonable because they have basically said, you can expect this in the game or something very close to it. And when stuff just isn't there or is so far removed from what they showed, I think that's, yeah, there's definitely criticisms to be levelled. There's an element of this about you know, these tears in the environments about, you know, in, in the final version we get is um, Elizabeth bringing out to say, here's an area for I've ripped a tear for some ammo because I can produce that. Or yeah. here's a tear. There's a sky hook. That's fine. And actually, they're good little incentives. And in, certainly when you're playing on harder difficulties, you do need those tears because you are running low of any one of those things. But in the build up to this, they showed you elements of, you know, using things from other dimensions so using mm. something from you know a police car from the 1980s you know ripping through the environment or dragging yeah. stuff from different dimensions and being able to utilize that as part of your combat i don't hate the combat in bioshock infinite don't i don't hate it, 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 yeah. it, it <laughs> it's 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 functional but it's no it's obviously it's not to the standard of something like doom 2016 um, but like just kind of talking through what i think is kind of uh, the, the reason why i feel like even though um, Bioshock Infinite, just on a pure like game feel uh, level, I think it feels better to control. Like the the combat kind of feels snappier and and tighter than Bioshock One. Yeah. However, I think the reason why ultimately I enjoy the combat in Bioshock One is not to do with the controls, but to do with the level design and the encounter design, the enemy uh, design. What's great about the first Bioshock, and um, Tony's going to do a little dance uh, revisiting Bioshock 2, what's also great about that, um, is how much like uh, the combat is using the, like puzzling out the environment and kind of mm -hmm. using like, oh, there's some oil slick there, or, you know, oh, there's a, there's a turret over there. Maybe if I hack it and, and all of that stuff, like setting up these traps in the environment. So while the, while the, um, the actual shooting doesn't feel feel as good your kind of engagement with the environment is stronger whereas in bioshock infinite your primary engagement in with the environment is finding a tear and telling elizabeth to turn it on and it feels like a series of switches that you're turning on and off whereas whereas yeah like the, the kind of interlocking systems of bioshock where it requires a little bit more effort to kind of notice these uh, these you know uh, mechanical uh, mechanical intricacies of the environment that you can exploit but also just the environments are uh, by and like even though you're under the sea and it's an enclosed space and it's very claustrophobic the environments are actually much more open and freeform in bioshock one there's an easy way to describe this and this is what i wanted to say as i was trying to hint actually when i was talking aesthetically Bioshock yeah. for me is a living, like Rapture itself is a living, breathing environment. Like there, because it's leaking, because it's needed maintaining, because there's elements of it that integrate into uh, mingle with you, both your combat and 
exploring of the environment, like trapped areas of, you know, water rushing through and having to get out of areas. And like part of Rapture is living and breathing. Certain parts of it are dying, but other parts are opening up. It feels like, you know, that is a place where Columbia, it doesn't have that living, breathing feel. It feels like it's an ideal up in the, up in the mm. sky. And yes, there's a point halfway through the game where it turns from, I guess, a utopia of religion to um, a war zone. But it, I mean, that's just literally a flip. It's just, okay, it's a different colour palette almost flip. So it, and it, but, and that doesn't even really um, play into the change of combat. It's just like, are you still doing the same thing? It's just a, a, you know, a palette swap. I think also, um, just while we're on the subject of enemies, um, there's, there's nothing on the level of a, a big daddy in terms of like player engagement in Bioshock Infinite. I think they try to capture that with the handymen. Mm. Um, but just there's so, there's so much character and personality conveyed by the big daddies by the fact that they're non-aggressive at first. Mm. That's such a, that's such a cool choice. I know it's not like that complicated to code or anything, but just from a, a narrative standpoint, having these enemies that are non-aggressive until you engage, um, it, it injects personality, but also it allows you to set up. Like it allows you to look at the environment and go, okay, I want that little sister. So um, there's some stairs <laughs> here. Maybe I'll, I'll, you know, lay down some traps here and lead it up the stairs. You, you're, you're figuring this stuff out and it the bioshock infinite is so aggressive with its enemies and its encounter design like they are so in your face that you barely have time to formulate these plans and ultimately you kind of default to this you know very aggressive offensive stance you're not doing the kind of environmental um puzzling out and i think a, a, you know a more recent example of a game that really highlighted for me uh, highlighted this for me is prey which you know came under a lot of criticism for the way the shooting felt and i, I you know i i love that game but i don't think though that criticism is entirely unjustified but what that game does and 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 made me realize what i loved about the combat about the first bioshock is that environmental stuff mm. but that's a, that's a topic for another time when we eventually do pray i think the sunburb was always set up to be that that real fearful um instrument against you but i mean i'd like to say once again original designs i think it believe it was had a more interactive role in this it's re- it's resigned just to basically cutscenes so set you, piece, yeah. yeah. Songbird's yeah, a set piece character that is neither here nor there. I, I've yeah. got the statue that, of Songbird that came with the collector's edition, and I thought that looked so cool because you can see the hands of the. It's clearly a person or a, a humanoid uh, being in a, in a suit. It's an incredible device, and when, when with the story, it's it's a really important element mm. of. Bioshock but, but it doesn't work when it's the height of a building. Yeah. That threat just completely yeah. goes from me, and it's just it may as well be a wrecking ball hammering at the walls. Like there's there's an emotional and narrative attachment, but there's something so much more scary about a man that's inside a diving suit or a, a bird outfit, essentially, that's been dehumanized like that to be this terrifying force of nature. And Songbird was never. That. It's funny because the, ha- yeah. I mean, the handymen are are the equivalent, I guess, of big daddies. But because within the um, within the story of rap- uh, within the story of Columbia they're made to be more acceptable to the environment yeah, they'll be you know so the people are less scared of them um, so by naturally they're less scary to you as an enemy because mm. they have a face 
you know, yes, they have an area to kill, but you know, essentially they're less scary. They can do a lot of damage for sure, but they're, yeah, they're not. You don't see them in the distance. Go, oh god, I'm gonna, like try to avoid a, an area well, of game. The thing with the big daddies is those characters have so much gravitas because it's not just the design and it's not just the way the gameplay works and it's not just the narrative. It's because all of those things mm-hmm. combine together to make something special. Songbird is narrative only, and that narrative stuff uh, really reflects what the big daddies do. But because it doesn't have the other stuff. Uh, the interactive stuff, it doesn't work. And the handymen are the opposite. Like, they have the kind of um, mechanical threat, but none of the narrative pathos mm. that that makes the, the, the Big Daddy such pitiable figures. A question I, I want to pose to Leon, and you know, maybe you can adjudicate this. Are we fair taking this game and comparing it against others in the series? Like, is that a fair stance? I mean, you know, if... if this was a game on its own. Can, you know, should we just be looking at its its heights of merits and and what it does, or the fact that it's you know such an integral part of the universe? There is an argument that it, this should never have been a Bioshock game, and that it maybe wasn't supposed to be. But I yeah. think it's inevitable when they put it on the box and they put it on the you know they they called it Bioshock from the first time they announced it in two thousand and ten until it was released three years later. Of course, you're going to compare it. Uh, I think. I think it can certainly serve your own peace of mind to do your best to think of it as an individual entity. And there certainly are elements of this game which don't parallel in the other games. But actually, the story, as we know, as we already know, we're going to discuss, actually is completely intertwined Mm. and takes you back to the setting of previous games. So, no, I I think it is fair. And if uh, I mean, you still ultimately you'll enjoy it how much you enjoy it, regardless of comparisons. But if those uh, yeah, if those comparisons are actually a negative, then... Yeah, as I say, I, I I'm with Josh. I think uh, actually the combat feels a little snappier. The guns yep. sound better and feel better yeah, to fire. Um, there's certain elements that they just didn't do in the previous game as well. Um, but actually, yeah, I think there are a few steps where you would. I think most people would say that they took a few steps backwards in some ways, and um, perhaps that's to do with the setting, to do with the ambition. Um, but no, I, I think comparisons are inevitable, and I think once you put the same name on the box and then intertwine the stories, <laughs> I think yeah, yeah I, don't, okay. I don't think it's I don't think it's unfair really. So uh, I, th- I think I can say this quite quickly on combat. Um, I found I didn't use traps almost at all, even on my 1999 mode playthrough that I've just done, mm. because with areas so large and when you've just got a wave of enemies coming from the essentially very often the other side of the area, you you couldn't know where enemies were going to be. I'd rather save my resources just to, to um, use vigors at the enemies and target them specifically. And I think that kind of comes down to a, an, an issue where the, the original trailer suggested a kind of freeform dynamicism with tears that would allow you to master an environment in a way that mm. setting up in the narrow environments of Rapture, you could set up traps, choose when to attack a big daddy. And I felt yeah. like I could go toe to toe with a big daddy and respond to what he's doing with a handyman. I felt like I just ran. The final fight, I just got, really got up on a sky rail, whipped around until I saw him jump up, jump down and shot him. That was the most boring five minutes of my life, <laughs> but it worked. Yeah. So that's what I did. I find that hard to believe, James. Well, it, it was up there. It was just <laughs> it, it was just like, well, is this really? I'm just going to hop up here and go around. Oh, I've bumped into him this time. That makes it slightly different. Now I've got to reverse. It was very odd I'm sure uh, it, sorry, scenario. Um, 
But and I agree that going back to uh, Bioshock and even Bioshock Two, the guns I don't think feel as good. The combat on the whole is um, certainly not what a modern day shooter would need to be to be thought of as a kind of top tier shooter. But I very quickly, like halfway through my first playthrough, certainly by my second came down to, I want to use Electrobolt and I want to use a wrench. And I'm going to build my character to do that. Yeah. It was kind of broken, though, in that it, regard. Absolutely. And that's what everyone ended up absolutely. using. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will need a grenade launcher to take out Big Daddies because I'm not hitting that thing with a wrench. I don't want to be that close <laughs> to it. But Actually, if you do all the mods and perks for the wrench, you, you pretty you, you much absolutely can. absolutely can, yeah. Uh, but but yeah. like the, um, the uh, camouflage and stuff doesn't work that well when you're um, in, in open uh, warfare, as it were. And you certainly can't get the sneaking buffs that you can get if, if you're just taking on individual mm. uh, splicers. Um, and actually, on my 1999 playthrough, I said to you guys, I wanted to find the one-two punch. And boy, did I find it. You can... Like, I was... The final battle, uh, the the command deck still had two-thirds mm. of its health, um, and I cut about that thing. I was surprised when it said it was over because I'd found it mm. so straightforward. Um, I used mm. charge. All of my gear was aimed towards getting me health and salt back from enemies and boosting melee stun. And I just... That's you playing smart. There's a lot of people who found that fight incredibly difficult. I did first time through, but actually... So every every fight for the last third of the game, half of the game, I just... From when I got charge onwards, charge at an enemy, they're stunned. Charge again, they're dead, basically, because anything other than a motorised patriot goes down. But you experimented with the vigours. A lot of people locked into the early ones or or stuck with whatever. And I did. I I, uh, flocked to Shock Jockey because I thought this is going to be my electrobot, and that's exactly what it is. it chains as well, which is is amazing, and stops dead bodies coming back to life. Also, maybe you had a particular... Because the the gear that you, you collect is somewhat procedurally generated, so maybe you had a particularly nice... Set. Yeah, well, I knew kind of what I was looking for and I was able to get towards it. But that first trailer that we saw suggested a freeform dynamicism to combat that I think we've only really seen in games that are that are often immersive sims, that are heavily mechanics-based. And what happens when two mechanics collide is unexpected. Um, and that's not what Bioshock Infinite tries to do. It, Maybe it was what well, they tried yeah, to do. Yeah, it's not what it ends uh, up yeah, doing, I should say. It's yeah. not what it ended up um, doing. It feels yeah. much more scripted in terms of how things go. Tadinho says, Gameplay-wise, Infinite is a step backwards in every way from the previous Bioshock games. First off, they limit you to two weapons at a time while implementing an upgrade system that's completely at odds with the limit. This means that you can upgrade a gun only to run out of ammo for it and be forced to switch to a weapon you have no upgrades for until the game decides to give you ammo for that weapon that you like. The vigors in this game are also a step back. They are not only fewer overall than in the previous games but their functions are also simpler you have two stuns two pushes two for damage one charm one shield and that's it the clothing system is also a step back it replaces the tonics from previous games but their effects aren't nearly as interesting it also doesn't help that they are randomly generated so you can't really plan a playthrough with any of them in mind speaking of which infinite really does away with any thought process a player might have coming from previous games there you had to plan for every big daddy fight. Resource management was a consideration and there were multiple ways to deal with each combat encounter. You could even play the game mostly stealth if you wanted. 
Bioshock Infinite does away with that. Here there's no planning, you just need to mow down enemies and the best you can do is lay some traps in the middle of combat or charm enemies. The sky rails are maybe the best feature when it comes to combat, allowing you to quickly zip around the battlefield, but it doesn't do enough to alleviate the problems, especially since later on enemies really become bullet sponges, with the worst offenders being the handymen and the ghost of Lady Comstock. Nix Fontana says skating on the sky rails and pouncing on enemies from above like Wolverine was exhilarating and added a bit of verticality to the game. I just wish there were more of these sky rail sections or some sort of option to traverse the environment in a fun way, mainly because Booker moves like a constipated turtle otherwise. I feel this hampers the overall gameplay as, even though the combat is fairly basic and enemies aren't too difficult to defeat, the sheer amount of enemies that swarm at you can kill you pretty quickly. Maybe it's because I played on hard difficulty this time around, but I felt Booker just wasn't most mobile enough to get away from and attack groups of enemies effectively, even with the sky rails at his disposal. Death wasn't too much of a setback in this game, but I still thought the game was unfair at certain points. I hate you Lady Comstock's ghost. I always made sure to keep an RPG on me at all times for this reason, and in terms of vigours I tended to fall back on bucking Bronco and Charge as they felt the most useful in terms of my playstyle. I thought the armour clothing mechanics were a nice touch, but I barely changed any of my gear as I always had a hat that let me electro punch people and stun them, as well as pants that gave me health. Don't we all want pants that give us health? Uh, if I scored a melee kill and when I was in the red. I really liked what they did with uh, Barrow at Sea. The change of pace from you know, endless hours of uh, you know, vigors or plasmas or whatever mm. it may be. Um, they made the, the the stealth weapons, that is the crossbow knockout stuff, massively overpowered compared to the killing weapons. But it, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I totally, yeah. You know, knocking people over, <laughs> over the head with a wrench. I was wondering if it was one of those stealth experiences where me as somebody who doesn't like stealth I tend to prefer stealth games where the stealth is massively yeah, overpowered yeah, <laughs> and this is this is one of those so James as somebody who likes creeping through levels undetected in games that are really harsh on that what did you reckon to Burial at Sea episode 2 in that respect? Uh, I, I think it helped it was in Rapture I think both Burial at Sea's kind of because they're okay. in Rapture mm. do go back to that kind of level design and as Josh mentioned uh, there's a very different sense of level and encounter design that's necessitated by that and plus because it's stealth mm -hmm. generally you're never really facing more than three or four enemies in a and if they are they're in a fair, fairly room in the main area there's there's often quite a few but they're spaced out and yeah on different levels and that kind of thing so major gamer over at canerince.com slash forum says I've never cared for the two or three weapon limit in first person shooters instead of giving lots of options depending on the circumstances you're in I just go for an all purpose approach generally a machine gun shotgun sniper to broadly cover the ranges those more powerful and situational weapons get tossed to the wayside since they could very well be useless in the upcoming battles this is exactly what happened with Bioshock Infinite compounded even more with the upgrade system the common guns get the upgrades so those rarer and more powerful guns are now fairly weak in comparison being left at the base level. On the hardest difficulty, enemies could take multiple rockets to the face while a partial machine gun clip could finish them <laughs> or even a single carbine bullet. Your powers could have spiced things up, but they lack the variety of the first two Bioshock games, mostly boiling down to how you want to stun the enemies, and I had one clear winner. Lightning gets upgraded to chain off enemies and, as a hidden bonus, destroys corpses, so the completely out-of-place ghost boss Lady Comstock can't infinitely revive soldiers. Sometimes limits can lead to new strategies that get forced upon you, but when one strategy felt so, so superior to anything else, there was no reason to expect 
experiment and possibly lose what was already working. Especially annoying that the DLC rectified all of this but left the base game untouched. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. Pleasingly, I think it's worth saying that uh, not quite Bastion style, but there are lots of people who have lots of different ideas for what the overpowered way to play this game is. And that kind of leads me to believe that they did a pretty good job of giving you lots of different options. Mm-hmm. Um, be- because. I, I didn't touch Shock Jockey aside from needing to open a door or, two, or power a thingy mm. or whatever um, right. when I found other ways that were uh, just as, as powerful as as um, Major Gamer found, found his. So I think that's a, a positive for the combat. In yeah, some ways. The, you know, oddly, yeah. I barely touched Charge, but Shock Jockey and a uh, hand cannon to the head works every time. I would just add that, because um, I watch a lot of Mark Brown's um, videos, um, uh, Game Maker's Game Toolkit. Game Maker's Toolkit. Yeah. Toolkit, yeah. Um, w- one thing he's brought up, and in fact there was an entire video about it, was... Um, uh, how its designers kind of, uh, you know, des- designers need to be be able to push you towards trying these new things. That's part of good design mm-hmm. sure. is getting you to experiment because, you know, players will always uh, just go with what, whatever's easiest and just uh, if they find a tactic that works, they're not going to necessarily, unless you're explorative like uh, James or anyone else, most gamers are just going to go with a tactic yep. that's most effective. Yeah. Mm. So the fact that, you know, a lot of players, you know, playing this game kind of default to attack that they tried earlier on is still even though it provides you with all these opportunities even though those opportunities are there if you'd only seek them out the fact that the game doesn't push you towards trying them out is a criticism of the game's design relating to this and i don't think we need to have another lengthy or in-depth discussion regarding ludonarrative dissonance it's something that obviously comes up from time to time but i think uh, this is a game where obviously it has lofty goals as a piece of art and a piece of storytelling but it also relies on the usual interaction of shooting people in the face and there's a few quite a few words been written on this um start here with michael abbott of the brainy gamer blog back in uh, april 2013 soon after the game was out who says bioshock infinite is a shooter with a problem but the problem isn't the shooting the problem is that bioshock infinite has nothing to say about the shooting a game that earnestly tries to explore morality and personal responsibility ducks those questions by placing the player on a conveyor belt of hyperviolent sequences shuttling the player from one narrative set piece to the next the shooting is what you do the story is what you mostly hear the two have very little to do with each other the issue isn't about being pro or anti shooter it's about how standard first person shooter design limits the narrative possibilities of a game that clearly aspires to dig deep how might i have behaved and how might i have reflected on infinite's provocative world had i not spent so much time shooting or avoiding being shot The game's story isn't really about shooting at all, but the player's lived story is, and that collision is impossible to overcome. I have a feeling that Bioshock Infinite will finally be seen as the apotheosis of the FPS genre, a culminating achievement that signals both a peak and an end. Every genre has conventions that limit and liberate, and artists inevitably breathe new life into old forms, but I can't help wondering how much longer we'll mistake being a gun for being a person. Lee Alexander in that Kotaku piece on a similar tip said, Why didn't we mind ludonarrative dissonance so much before? Because that was before and this is now. What happens without the cage? Are you as obedient as ever? That question underlies everything the game's done with the resources it's been given and answers itself. This can't be the way forward, at least. And Ken Levine 
sort of addressing this. Uh, it's slightly tangential, but I thought it was a, an apposite quote. This was from March 2014. Levine said, Once you start getting characters like Elizabeth, with Booker's violence, the first time she sees it, she reacts to it. So you're stuck as a writer, and there's no excuse here. There's no, I'm being honest, portraying my struggles as a writer. If she didn't react to that scene, you'd be like, all right, well, you roll with that pretty easily. As it is, Elizabeth is pretty horrified the first time she sees Booker in action, though, of course, she soon enough reconciles herself to it. But if she reacts to it realistically, says Levine, the reaction actually would probably be so long lasting and so profound that the game would come to a screeching halt. So you try to walk this fine line and movies do it too, where you have a diehard movie. The guy is a mass, mass, mass murderer and he finishes up and reunites with his wife and they share a few jokes. He would have PTSD for the rest of his life. There is an aspect with the suspension of disbelief. You can make the issues less abstract like with Elizabeth's dialogue, but I don't have all the answers to that question and it's something I struggle with all the time. So I suppose there he's not actually answering the, the above point about, you know, why we interact with these worlds through a gun. That's something that we have discussed before. Uh, yeah, I'd like to say five years down the line, we solved that problem, but actually five years down the line, we're no closer to solving that problem. So, Well, there's, there's more walking simulators. Well, now. Yeah. Uh, I've, there, there's quite a few uh, pieces of correspondence that I've, that I've seen and pieces that I've read that you know, sort of suggest that maybe Bioshock Infinite should have been something more akin to that rather than a shooter. But I mean, it wasn't and it isn't. But it's an interesting. Well, thought. and it couldn't have been because that game doesn't get made with the budget and number of people that Bioshock Infinite had. Yes. So, so market forces come yeah. into play mm -hmm. as well, and and people's proclivi uh, proclivities and expectations. So it is a huge discussion. But obviously, Bioshock Infinite, I think, for all its flaws, uh, caused a lot of discussion, as we are mm -hmm. seeing and hearing, and none more so than as regards to its story. So. I want to talk first a little bit about the actual, the sort of nature of the sci-fi of the story and the quantum physics and the multiverse and all that kind of thing um, before we get on to the politics of it. Also, characters and cast obviously come into this. So let's start with Booker and Elizabeth. I think it's fairly obvious the animators drew their inspiration for Elizabeth's emotions, characteristics, animations from female protagonists of Disney movies. Rich Stanton in Eurogamer in 2014 said you could not visit Irrational Games without coming away clear about Elizabeth. She has been one monumental heave for this studio and her components are pure blood, sweat and tears. One of Bioshock Infinite's prototypes had a mute companion and the inevitable switch from this to a speaking part was the point of no return. Nix Fontana from our forum says, I really enjoyed Elizabeth as a character. I like how animated she was and how she did not follow the, stere the stereotype of terrible escort character. She would smile and dance at the wonders of the world and pout in thought as she leaned against elevator walls and decrepit chairs. I felt her voice actress, Courtney Draper, did an excellent job displaying the various emotions she felt throughout the game. I also felt genuine anger when Elizabeth willingly gave herself to the songbird for Booker's sake. And that whole section within the bad future was fascinating. Yet I felt unfulfilled at how she became all-knowing and all-powerful towards the end. It's, it felt like they'd rushed the rest of her development. I disliked Booker as a main character, and I thought he was a bland thug who was fairly unsympathetic towards everyone he met for the majority of the game. But that may have been the point of the developers. He wasn't someone that you were rooting for necessarily. In fact, I think that role is reserved for Elizabeth. Booker plays the same role as Joel did in The Last of Us, serving as an example of the harsh realities of the world, of the character who may hold the key to its salvation. Still, I felt that, even though he was sympathetic towards Elizabeth's plights, that there was no real bond formed between him and Elizabeth. It felt like they were temporary allies, agreeing to help each other for one reason or another. Comstock, as a villain, felt kind of underdeveloped in terms of his motivations and reasons for doing what he did, and his final confrontation with Booker and Elizabeth was anticlimactic, to say the least. 
There's a, a weird problem that uh, Ken Levine kind of uh, was talking about specifically, not even alluded to, um, with, yes, it's great to have Elizabeth react to the violence, but she does, I think, get over it too quickly. And I understand that that has to happen. Um, but mm-hmm. specifically, it, it came to me not just in her initial reaction, um, but when she realizes that Booker is essentially kidnapping her on the first lady and clubs him with a wrench and then sets the, mm. uh, or, or the um, first lady uh, gets sort of brought to, to ground and she runs. Um, and there's a, a section where you're chasing after her and she's c- clearly saying, no, stop following me. And you're chasing after her. And at one point Booker yells out, I'm not angry with you. And I just got flashbacks of some of the, you, you know, the scenes from films 30, 40 years ago and even more recently than that, that, or in today's light, look a little bit, uh, I think rapey is probably the fair term. Yep. Blade Runner being a, a famous... That is uh, exactly the one off, that came to mind. Now, there's not a suggestion, I think, even at that point, that there's a romantic intre- uh, interest between Booker and Elizabeth for reasons that become very obvious towards the end of the game. Um, but there, there is that feeling of um, this relationship is in a strange place where you want to have genuine reactions, but the gameplay doesn't allow for them. Plenty of moments where the conversation that's being had between Booker and Elizabeth is completely undermined by the fact that a second later, Elizabeth throwing out a quip and leaning casually against the wall um, Mm. in a way that doesn't befit what's happened literally five or 10 seconds previous. Um, And that's difficult. I'm not suggesting it's an easy thing to overcome, but it's very problematic for me in the tone of the relationship between the two central characters in the game. I mentioned that in that post there that, you know, she's as an escort character, she doesn't have the, the normal traits of being an annoying. That's because she's not really an escort character. She's just a avatar on a screen that's following you delivering story. She's never in danger. There's no way she can die. She says right away, I can handle myself. Yeah, so, and she's there essentially in the gameplay to supply you with ammo and health, um, which is never a bad thing in any game. You know, extra supply of that, a lot of the complaints. So I don't think she really is an escort character of of that kind. And also the story delivery is, is odd in this game purely because actually if you talk about the gameplay, the gameplay is to shooting and there's very little inter- other than her delivering you those extra bits like she doesn't involved in the gameplay. So the story generally is delivered in elevator shafts or walking through an area of, of massacre where you've killed everybody you know, from A to B. There's actually not that much story that is played out during um, scenes of gameplay itself. So, you know, I, I just don't think, you know, from a point of view of her being a gameplay character, I don't think she is. I think she is just basically a story device that is attached to your side of no threat. As likable as she is, she kind of is symbolic of my problems with the game in general. Whereas, you know, Elizabeth is very appealing on her surface. Um, on a surface, like she's very charming, she's likable and, and all of that stuff. She's very, you know, we mentioned Disney characters, like she reminds me of Belle a lot mm-hmm. uh, from Beauty and the Beast. Um, but I, I don't think there's really anywhere near the level of depth of character with her, with Booker, and especially with Comstock as someone like Andrew Ryan. Andrew Ryan it casts such a dark shadow over uh, over the first Bioshock. He is he is both like 
you know, he he represents what I think are are incredibly po- problematic views in in you know politics back then, but also right now. But like the way they frame that character, like he's that it make they make it very clear that the game is a criticism of his politics and his views. But at the same time, because the voice acting is so strong and the writing for that character, there's a poetry to the way Andrew Ryan talks and a charisma and. And a charisma, and you can see, you could see how people could be sucked into that. Yeah. You can feel yourself being sucked into it. And I never got that sense of Comstock. <laughs> like, I just can't see, like, I can't see anyone looking at Comstock's worldview and not immediately thinking he was the worst person in the world. Well, like, you it, say it, that. But, <laughs> right, I mean, this is a very difficult subject. We can't, re- well, I don't know where we can talk about religion. On, on this show but well we definitely can and we are because okay. <laughs> it's kind of unavoidable to talk yeah. about this game we're going into racism uh, I know you wanted to talk about the the uh, time travel uh, not time travel the dimension hopping first but I think that the reason why I think Comstock doesn't work is because the the, the racism is such a kind of cartoonish it, it's the obvious racism. It's like the, oh, well, of course that's evil. Like, it's not the more sinister Insidious, kind yeah, of absolutely. dog yeah. whistle racism. Like, the evil that Andrew Ryan represents, like, it on paper, you can see how people would think this idea of this world is so beautiful, but in its, in its execution, it falls apart and you see the moral cracks. And I think the racism that we're, we're dealing with today in today's climate, it's not anywhere near as like it's not like trump is saying i hate all black people it's 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 more insidious there's just these these phrases that racists know are you know they know what he's talking about but it also sucks in people who think yeah yeah no i think sure but that's not the only kind of racism to depict though because all this very uh black and white blanket hardcore racism existed for a very long time and actually still does yes okay there are more subtle and insidious forms of it now which is actually you know how certain of these people came to power but in in the case of things like apartheid which is almost how Colombia operates hmm. uh, where the people of color Irish people Jews are all subjugated effectively um, you don't you know I, I don't I don't see it as a criticism that depicting the most obvious kind of racism but not the subtle kind is is not necessarily this is one fragment of a, of a big problem my big problem is is that they take a subject as as weighty and as sensitive as racism as as nationalism and ultimately it feels like in the grand scheme of the story it's 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 just kind of a backdrop for the dimension hopping storyline the parts of bioshock story that i like the most is this this uh, multiverse stuff like mm. i think the um the lutes twins are great characters those characters are the closest i think the game comes to something you know something as iconic mm. as as andrew ryan or um uh, mm. uh, i've forgotten the artist's name in the first bioshock sander cohen, sander yeah. cohen. Um, those characters, I, I love the interplay between the two of them. I think yeah, they're so great, and I, and I do think the kind of the subtle changes to the environment, all of that stuff, it's really interesting. But it's 
it's poisoned a bit for me by the fact that it like you've got this 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 sensitive subject um uh, you know this you know weighty subject in the form of racism and it's being sidelined and it's being pushed to the background by the the more kind of um you know thought experiment type sci-fi and if it was on its own if it was just this i think there's a there's a different reality where we're recording this podcast and i'm actually praising the storytelling but i think it, you can't talk about one without the other i think one aspect taints the other one thing i did want to say was i i read a quote from ken levine which where he basically said comstock is not as good a character as andrew ryan uh yeah. so i'm not saying that excuses or, but, yeah. or, or, but he 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 is aware that he didn't write as charismatic a villain this time around in a nutshell my issue is that uh and it ties comstock together with uh the the universe hopping and it, it ties it together with with booker as well i suppose which of course he is unlimited, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, inevitably, completely tied to because they are the they same. Are th- yeah, exactly. I, I don't buy that the Booker we hear about in the game before he yeah. he spent twenty years going down a hole, uh, went into a baptism and came out Comstock. I I don't see how that happens. Now, if you're going to tell me and and show me, hopefully in the game, that that is not something that. Comstock believes it's something that he used to gain power. Again, pretty relevant to, to modern politics. But if you're going to tell me, or rather better show me, that that's the case, but that never happens. Comstock is a racist uh, religious figurehead that I I never know where that side of Booker came from. We're not led to believe that Booker was a racist. He hated what he'd done, and that's why he stood there wanting to be baptized. I think it's more about the idea that certain forms of construction of a society Mm -hmm. uh, will turn your society, even if the way that Columbia turns out is not necessarily... He's not actively preaching the darkest elements. It's more that that's a kind of um, a symbiotic process but the, there are so many recordings in the world where comstock he is, is he's preaching and it's preaching pretty that close to okay. the bone yeah yeah you're right actually yeah you know i've seen people born again in real life even in the modern world and it's there's an element of indoctrination and brainwashing and i think the problem the problem is i i understand andrew ryan in a way that i don't understand not comstock's ideology because that's it's not something i i believe in or uh, feel anything but revulsion towards but i i i get why people end up there uh, i just don't see why the booker at wounded knee yeah. ends up there the element of the time travel or the you know split realities that this game deals with you know we could Make a Kane and Yeah, it's not really time travel. It's okay, but, it's okay, multiverse. Well, it can but, be time um, travel, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, well, yeah, they definitely yeah. is two separate time zones that you are interacting with. But the problem is, we could make a Kane and Rinse of eight hours mm. and still be talking about some of the aspects which they play with and some of the time periods that essentially you could or couldn't visit and some of the. Well, not eight hours, an infinite. Well, <laughs> okay, well, there's millions of places that this is split to. What makes this, to me, the aspects of the game which I feel like I just brushed off first time around, just like I don't really get what the story was aiming for, because the moment for for me, the moment you start setting up stuff such as multiverses, I think it gets really messy. And I also think it gives writers excuses to just you know explore some areas and then just drop them and, and not fully commit to something. Mm. So I think Bioshock, the Andrew Ryan character, is fully committed to. 
And this is where the, the problem we have was talking about, you know, let's just talk about this show as one piece of, because it wasn't one piece of content. It was Infinite, Barrow at Sea Part 1 and Barrow at Sea Part 2. And those two elements, to me, make the game a whole. Without them, Bioshock Infinite, I think, is a confused mess that doesn't actually sell its ideal to the player. With it, I think it's a really interesting explore, look at multiverse and how Bioshock exist in this reality or how rapture exists in this reality i'm 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 a bit surprised by your positive reaction to the the story stuff in uh in the dlcs because for me like i couldn't view it as anything other than damage control for the the story of the main game um um, we'll get into this when I'm let off the leash um, <laughs> about the racism stuff. But um, like, it, it just felt like, uh, especially episode two, it just felt like they were trying to, you know, they were reacting to the conversation. The emailer from the forum says, I never really engaged with this story, which I summarise as, isn't quantum mechanics weird? Maybe it's my background as a physicist, but this didn't seem a deep story to me, just an excuse to have time travel or alternate dimensions. I never cared about Booker or Comstock, so I wasn't particularly engaged. This is typified by the Deus Ex Machina Lutes twins, skin deep characters just there to give dumps of babble to move the story on. Not a fan. Simon Sloth, meanwhile, says to me, for a game which has infinite in the title, quite often things seem very binary. Heads or tails, Robert or Rosalind, Fitzroy or Comstock is an infinite number of worlds. In an infinite number of worlds, anything can happen. But, and this is the most important part, they choose to show you this one. It undermines Daisy and the Vox Populi and is more than just a missed opportunity. Just on on the binary nature, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. Yep. Um, we we go from one universe where uh, Chen Lin is uh, dead to one where he's alive, mm. and uh, any change is a very binary change. His wife goes from being, yes. I think, Chinese to American. Um, he worships Comstock now instead of Buddha. Elizabeth has the power to take them into one of an infinite number of yes. realities where that is the only change. So sure. that is the justification for that, constant right? And. and- Constants and variables. Constance I don't variables, understand yeah. the criticism, like, and this goes for almost anything, any any time travel, space, multi dimensional plot. Like, you can't literally depict an infinite number of things. <laughs> sure. And <laughs> sci fi only ever exists as an allegory mm. and as a, a means to tell a story about humanity. So people saying, but it doesn't have infinite number of universes in it. It's like, no, and it never could have done. No, and absolutely. that's not the point. And, and I get like, that. Back to the Future, that doesn't work. The Terminator, <laughs> that doesn't no. work. H.G. Wells' Time Machine, that doesn't work. But I, I absolutely get that's, that. You have to go in with that. that. Only a couple of things change. It's just. On the one hand, Elizabeth picked a different universe that she didn't seem to know whether or not he'd be alive. It was just there was right, a okay. clue there was something yeah. different. And sure. then there are only very specific things different. And we, there, there's talk about there being knock-on effects, but they're only in very specific ways and they don't feel like or, organic changes like that could be made on, you know, butterfly uh, effect where you, you sort of, you know, have a, a cascade yes. of changes that follow on from it. Yeah, that I mean, that would have been even more ambitious and interesting. And it couldn't be done yet. Also, Col- Columbia has to look roughly the same, just from the point of view of how do you design a world and how yeah. it change fundamentally every time. Yeah, I get that. Tadinho says Bioshock Infinite is torn between wanting to tell a sci-fi story about multiple realities and a political story and ends up failing in both with both story strands ending up half-baked and shallow. I know this opinion is shared by a lot of people. Andrew Brown says Bioshock Infinite does not understand the word infinity and it's 
in the damn title. Predictable, though the twist would be to begin with, its apparent solution is for Elizabeth to travel the multiverse and kill Booker before he has the chance to become Comstock. As half a dozen Elizabeths drown the Booker player character, they begin to wink out of existence as though the deed has been done. But there's always a lighthouse, there's always a man, there's always a city. In an infinite multiverse, Booker, Comstock, is not defined by only by his choice of baptism. There are Bookers who never participated in the massacre, there are Bookers who never sold Elizabeth to the Lutesses, there are Comstocks who never achieved power or influence. There are Comstocks who stood down when the government of the United States ordered him to. There are Elizabeths who chose not to kill Booker Comstock. There are Elizabeths who would fight the other Elizabeths. There are infinite combinations of infinite possibilities, <laughs> but Bioshock Infinite's climax would have us believe that killing a single man at a single point in time would bring infinity to a halt. Is preposterous. At best, Elizabeth is dooming herself to spending an eternity searching the multiverse for Booker's to kill. Burial at Sea seems to reach in desperation towards this idea. To me, that is a very strange way of looking yeah. at how telling a sci-fi I, I read story. the ending is much more symbolic yeah. uh, of what was exactly. happening. <laughs> yeah, Not yeah. specific it's in the, that way. You can't literally tell a story about the multiverse, as I was just yeah, saying. Yeah, it's yeah. impossible. Weirdly, I want to lead to Bioshock Infinite's defence here. <laughs> I, I do think... First of all, yes, I think a lot of sci-fi stories you need to read it as allegory and metaphor mm. first and foremost, rather than uh, rather than taking it the mechanics too literally. I mean, uh, what's the f- Looper? Like Looper is oh, if yeah. if you go digging for uh, plot holes in that That's film, you'll find them a plenty. But I think nonsense. the the thematic there's another one yeah yeah that doesn't yeah make any sense. <laughs> i think the the thematic kind of core that you know of looper is really really strong and i think it, it when when you've got something like that where it, like the, the the mechanics of the plot are serving theme so well it's easy to ignore these kind of you know mechanical inconsistencies and also bioshock infinite does give itself a uh, an out with the constants and variables thing where like the, the yeah. idea is that there are things that will always stay the same and there are things that will change and you may say well that's just an excuse but like it's there you know it's they've included it in the plot so they have thought about that stuff the, the point of the story about any story like this is that humanity keeps falling into the same trap Interestingly, I thought this was worthy of, uh, of reading a quote from Paul Tassi, written for Forbes, around the time the game came out. Bioshock Infinite would have been cool if it was another crazy man running in an impossibly placed city, just like the first Bioshock. But what Irrational has done here is downright transcendent, and I'm putting my full support being the idea that the game is indeed a legendary feat of storytelling. Sean Robertson, though, interestingly, this is a lead artist or yeah, who worked on the game, says despite the several themes that the game would explore, the story in the end was not about them. Robertson explained that the themes were there to serve as a backdrop and to frame a more human-sized and emotionally resonant story about individuals. He went on to say that while the opera-sized story and the political turmoil would, ser- turmoil would serve as the backdrop, the story was ultimately about Booker and Elizabeth. One thing I read was that the original conflict in the game, rather than the Vox Populi and uh, and Comstock's sort of uh, religious conservative regime, was simply going to be tech geeks versus Luddite. But then Levine decided that this wasn't going to be controversial enough, so he changed it and had the, added the political uh, angle. And probably a heck of a lot more articles uh, got written about his game. So <laughs> there you go. Um, Zachary Comstock's portrayal as a zealot 
uh, was also deemed by some to offend gamers with strong religious backgrounds. As a member of the Bioshock Infinite Development team, even threatened to resign over the game's ending, believing the game was saying being religious causes you to be evil. Comstock was altered after Levine spoke with this developer who helped Levine to consider the reconsider the notion of forgiveness in the New Testament and set to figure out why people came to follow Comstock and to understand the ecstatic religious experience they would be seeking. Levine did not consider this reinvention of the character to be censorship, instead a means to present the story better to a broader audience. In another case, a player that considered himself a devout believer of Christianity was offended by the forced baptism that Booker receives prior to entering Columbia proper, prompting him to request a refund due to being unaware of this content in the game. Uh, Levine and Irrational Games were also criticised by various groups upon demonstrating the uh, founders, people that favoured the ideals of the Tea Party, including Levine's relatives, felt the game was attacking that movement. On the announcement of the Vox Populi, Levine found some websites claiming that the game was an attack on the Labour movement. And one white supremacist claimed that the Jew Ken Levine is making a white person killing simulator. It's been criticised by both sides, uh, which is which is curious. Levine considered that Infinite, like Bioshock before it was a raw shark test for most people, uh, thought that it would be taken negatively in nature and upset them as his vision in crafting the stories was about not buying into a single point of view. And interestingly, as conversely from uh, the white supremacist website uh, saying that it was a white person killing simulator, uh, assets were appropriated. Uh, some of the game's imagery was used by conservative groups. In 2013, the National Liberty Foundation, a group in the Tea Party movement, used a propaganda mural from the game espousing the founders' racism and xenophobia <laughs> on their Facebook page before its source was recognised and later taken down. A Colombian propaganda poster showing George Washington standing tall with the Ten Commandments above a throng of racist caricatures of Irish, Chinese, Native Americans, Mexicans and Indians this propaganda poster showing the xenophobia of the founders was briefly used by the National Liberty Foundation. Fox News created a logo extremely similar to the Bioshock Infinite logo for a segment titled Defending the Homeland Relating to Immigration Control. Andrew Brown on this says, Since a Tea Party group unironically put the mural from the Knights of the Raven Lodge on their Facebook page, I'd say it's a video game walking into a minefield unprepared and stepping on the first landmine in its way. One thing we're learning in a very, very hard way in the United States right now is satire doesn't work when the target doesn't get that they're being made fun of. Too many reporters, artists and critics regurgitate the bile of hate groups verbatim, thinking they'll hang themselves with their own words, but instead become the unwitting mouthpieces for those values. Bioshock Infinite runs into this problem hard. I don't agree again. Sorry, Andrew. I don't, I don't, there's billions of, an infinite number, some might say, of cases of people being satirised and being so stupid and obtuse that they actually think that uh, that it's it's their cause that's being espoused. And again, I think that comes back to Levine's Rorschach thing. And I guess maybe that's what you're saying to an extent. Ken Levine says regarding all this stuff, I don't worry about it. Our, face, our first game involved infanticide. We can't work from a place of fear because otherwise you start censoring yourself. And the only censoring I do is I say, is this going to make the game better or worse? Jacob Geller, regarding the story, says, first, the good the game depicts racism. This is a big deal for games, which tend to stay far away from this territory. My critiques of how it addresses racism are not trying to keep games from being political, and I'm glad such a mainstream release dove into such a tricky area. When we run into issues is when we get to the actual plot, because, and this is important, Booker and Elizabeth are not affected by the white supremacy that runs Colombia. When do they directly interact with the racial politics of the city? When they have to get weapons for the Vox Populi as part of a fetch quest. They switch timelines into an all-out rebellion from the enslaved 
members of Columbia. And what does Booker say? When it comes down to it, the only difference between Comstock and Fitzroy is how you spell the name. This is absurdity. It's nonsense. Booker has just equated slavery with slave rebellion, paralleled oppression and protest. And this isn't meant to be Booker as a flawed character either. Him and Elizabeth, our vessels for interacting with the world, are in agreement on how horrific this rebellion is. Elizabeth gets her moment of character development by killing the leader of the rebellion, who is positioned as an insane and violent reactionary. The game seems actively anti-justice. The philosophy espoused by our main characters is one of blithe moderation. A child's understanding of the goal golden rule without any acknowledgement of context or larger structures of oppression. There's a piece of Anita Sarkeesian's work where she brings up that violence against women is often used to establish that the setting is violent and morally bankrupt. The women don't particularly matter. They're just a shortcut for setting the tone of the place. This is how Infinite uses race. The racism of Columbia has nothing to do with Elizabeth's imprisonment, Booker's guilt, or however many infinite timelines there are. It's a plot device and little more. In our modern day world full of white nationalism at both individual and state levels, Bioshock Infinite should be a cultural touchstone. The original Bioshock still works as a scathing critique of objectivism, its hellish world brought up as a punchline for anyone purporting to love Ayn Rand and her politics. But Infinite fumbles the ball. The game presents racism as a sort of historical artefact, a curiosity to be looked at from the heights of our new progressive values, its unwillingness to draw comparisons to the modern world or to challenge the player's existing understanding of the issues makes the racism in Bioshock Infinite simply inconsequential. And that's a damn shame. I think that's basically what you were saying josh yeah I, I mean i couldn't have said it better myself i think that really really sums up my big problem with the story yeah that's why we let jacob write for the blog <laughs> I, I think it's uh, it's also just that 2013 maybe was just at the tail end of when uh it was seen as acceptable to just point out racism and not necessarily take a sure. stand on it. It's a different time. Uh, well, it, it does <laughs> yeah. feel like that. It really does. And this game doesn't fly in 2018. Uh, it barely did in 2013, I think uh, it's fair to say. Mm. Um, but it really, it many, really it doesn't yeah. uh, fly now. You, you, yeah. you need to be having a point to make about this. You need to be having something significant to say. Otherwise, clam up, please. What I will say is that Booker is never really portrayed. I mean, he, he you know, he interacts in a courteous fashion with uh, people of colour and the Irish and, and mm. the Jews in, in uh, but he's not particularly, you know, I think the idea, he's just, he's just this laconic guy. Yeah. He could, he could go either way. And indeed he does in, in one universe. Elizabeth is fully on board with the rebellion until it turns to scalping people and infanticide. <laughs> She is yeah. she is absolutely in full support of it. It's only when it turns into this really brutal, mm. uh, beyond just you know the the idea of trying to equalize things. She is absolutely in favor mm. of that. And then when she sees the scalps and the murdered children and things like that, that's when she's like, well, actually, this is welcome isn't, to politics is... of the modern world. It's very easy to say go and do that for me, and then when it's brought on your door, it's all suddenly yeah, that's such much more yeah, reality. Yeah, another so. way to uh, yeah another way to look at that is uh, Elizabeth's all for. Uh, the rebellion, as long as it's on her terms, as mm -hmm. long as it's how she wants yeah. the rebellion to go, and that—that's not how that works. It's not. No. Having read pieces by people who are from the black community, and uh, like I, I get the feeling that there's a lot of talk about how white people have kind of taken uh, Martin Luther King and basically turned him into how white people feel like the conversation of race needs to be. And that is the best way to talk about race, is this nice, peaceful, kind of uh, passive way of talking about it. And any anyone who, anyone 
someone who was more angry and more aggressive about their stance, that kind of gets erased from the conversation for white people. Not all white people. I'm not trying to say that everyone's the like generalization this. Generalization, just, just <laughs> like the the general the general view is that we want things to you know let's peacefully protest. Let's not get angry. Let's just talk about this civilly. But the the the, the fact is a lot of things that ha- you know have changed for the better have been because of violent actions like world war like i can't find anyone who would say that world war 2 wasn't a necessary act of violence like it was horrible it was a horrible event and every like and, and people left that event traumatized but we need we needed to you know act against the nazis we needed to do something and i think like just that line that line saying like the only difference is a change of the name it really bugs me because it ignores the context in which fitzroy and you know comstock are coming from like comstock is a monster through and through there's no justification for his actions whatsoever whereas fitzroy first like first of all fitzroy's the only like real uh, voice that the vox populi have and the 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 you know the people of color of um columbia have she's the only voice and she's turned into a monster in the second half of the game well, like, and I, look, and I, and I want to, you know, I want to state here that there's a difference between like maliciously, you know, painting. Like, I believe this is an accident. Like, I, I, like, I don't, I don't clumsy, think, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I don't believe anyone involved in Bioshock Infinite is, you know, uh, has troubling views. But like, there's a clumsiness to the yeah, way race is handled mm-hmm. here, and like, not thinking. Wait, it's a bit, it's a bit weird that the only kind of real voice that mm-hmm. we give to uh, people of color in this 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 universe ends up being a bad guy. Ends up being, um you know a villain and they do some damage control with uh, Fitzroy in the the yeah, DLC the DLC's weird, isn't it? where they it try to ex- yeah. yeah, it tried to explain yeah. away her actions, Definitely which I don't think were don't think no. work at all. What would have been better is just to have like you know have a character who is on Booker and Elizabeth's side who can speak to that perspective. Yeah. And it, I, I want to bring up a recent example because. Um, if you had told me in 2013 a Wolfenstein game would handle the <laughs> exact same things, uh, exact same themes as Bioshock Infinite, uh, but more elegantly, I would have yeah. laughed. But um, that's exactly what uh, Wolfenstein 2, the new Colossus, does. It gives a voice to that perspective from the protagonist side, mm. from the from the hero side, and it just it, it, it that game does just a much more elegant, uh, it just much more mm. elegantly talks about this this issue and and this uh, this this uh, situation perhaps um, ken levine and the other several writers on the game we should say uh, like ken levine obviously takes ultimate responsibility it's his story but there were uh, five other uh, four or five other writers on the game including a senior writer maybe it's a, a poor choice or a poor decision but i think I, I think there is a danger and i think people do this a lot in in modern analysis is conflating characters with the beliefs of the people who create the fiction sometimes the character being bad isn't is neither a reflection on the person 
um, sorry, the type of person that character represents or the author. It's a, it's, it's, it's a fiction. And obviously I completely agree that you have to be conscious and careful and thoughtful about these things, but it is just possible. There's a, you know, I, I think there's more to this than in its clumsiness and just that one line. But I think there probably could have been a few small changes that would have made this far less contentious, including the fact that Daisy Fitzroy wasn't black in earlier drafts of the game. It's very easy to just kind of focus in on the artist, but I, I feel like the reaction to Bioshock Infinite speaks to unchallenged assumptions in the culture at large. Sure. I don't yeah. think, I don't think, you know, it's easy to point fingers but ultimately I, f I wasn't thinking about this stuff when Bioshock Infinite came out and then I I read opinion pieces from people who don't look exactly like I do yeah. and how they reacted to it and it kind of we have one coming it up. made me and it made me look at these things and I feel like when you know when the writers were writing this they were me back in 2013 they they thought they were being progressive they thought yeah. they had the right perspective but ultimately, they needed some assumptions to be challenged. They took a middle ground. They just they with that one line. They're not trying to upset either party, yet kind of misjudging exactly what they've created. One in of their our own. correspondents agrees yeah. with that. Ken Levine did actually say that that his perspective on this is is actually that he has seen people who are who are not necessarily victims of of this level of oppression, but people not necessarily behave in the way that you would expect, and that that he can say that you know. Mm. One group of people, when they're pushed down, when they then come out from under that, there can be an aspect of vengeance. Both both sides are as bad as one another to a certain extent, and that is something that that I forget where I read it. I've read so much over the past couple of days. I apologise, but that's something yes, that Ken Levine very specifically said he wanted to show, and and that's I think okay. You know, um, a couple of Lars von Trier films that that this game brought to mind for me, Dogville and uh, Manderley, say things about whether people who are oppressed fear freedom. Uh, that's an interesting perspective. It's not something you can say as a blanket statement, but that's a, it's an interesting psychological and thought experiment. Um, and, and another yeah. aspect is whether people who are oppressed, when given the opportunity, will oppress in turn, whether the bullied becomes the bully, in, a, in essence. Um, and I, I think, again, if you're telling a personal story, that's an interesting thing to interesting aspect or uh, perspective to take i think the problem here is that's seen by both the central characters and the game as a whole as an absolute truth uh, and that, while yes that's just a perspective and it's perfectly possible to take other perspectives etc etc and the writers should be allowed to express what they want to it feels tone deaf it is the only way that I can express it. We brought up this before, but I feel like just not enough attention is paid to it. Like it, 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 it wants to, you know, have this conversation, but only when it's at the convenience of this, this dimensional hopping, hopping storyline. Like if, if this was given room to breathe and they really expanded on it and, and I felt like they you know, they they were representing the you know other perspectives aside from you know a white female, white male, you know protagonist kind of commentary on events. Then maybe like there's a version of this where I think actually I, I see what you're doing yeah. here. It's great, but it's not given enough time and screen time to grow and evolve into something. Interesting. Uh, Ed Smith of Waypoint in October 2016 says uh, when Infinite is talking about politics, religion, and race, it treats all 
three subjects like thought experiments to be kicked around and intellectually masturbated over, <laughs> it rapidly drains the game of credibility. Bioshock Infinite implies punching up is as bad as punching down. Stealing bread to feed a family is as criminal as stealing it just because you can. There are, these are moral absolutes and in dispassionate, purely, purely academic discussion, they may serve fine, but they make no accommodation either for people. At best, Infinite is the equivalent of book learning. It purports to be taking the pulse of a nation and capturing the voice of the population, but in favour of its own middle-brow posturing, ignores the context governing that population's wildly varying experiences. This piece is from a blog, Starburp, um, from 2014, and uh, I I hope the author doesn't mind that I've sanitised it a little. This was actually written with a lot more anger and a lot more swearing because we like to keep, and we like as many people to hear this show as possible. I've removed some of the swearing. So Starburp says, the black people in this storyline aren't people, they're props, literally. And that's what I find so offensive about Bioshock Infinite. Is it that makes black people props in a storyline in which white people get to revise white history through all kinds of fanciful sci-fi wizardry in order to make themselves feel better while still excluding and marginalising black people? And we're supposed to be happy about it. OK, thank you. Thank you so much for being so concerned about faithfully depicting black life in 1912 in a floating white supremacist city in the clouds in which people can travel between space and time that you forgot to depict any other aspect of historical reality or even to give the black people in the game brains. No, actually, what you did is create a whole fantasy 1912 in which you relegated blacks to symbolically representing the demon of overt historical white racism because that is the only demon white people are willing to fight because it's already obsolete. So there's no real challenge there. Forgot how you just perpetuated racism with your stupid game. White people present this reality to the exclusion and marginalization of all other realities. And then they give themselves a pat on the back for kind of thinking about racism for like a couple of days. And then they turn viciously defensive when people of color confront their stupid, inane, inaccurate version of reality, even though the fact that people of color feel excluded and marginalized by it should be the only evidence white people need to understand that they messed up. Bioshock Infinite is just goddamn inadequate. It's an insult to my people. It reduces my people to passive victims in a white narrative. That's pretty strong stuff. Uh, and I pretty much yeah, agree. Fair. <laughs> I can't disagree yeah. with any of it, and nor would I want to. Sort of says what Tony was saying. I believe that the game portrayed both the founders and the Vox Populi as equivalent evils so the developers and publishers could reach a bigger audience. For instance, I think if they would have tried to show the Vox Populi as a mostly sympathetic movement. Many gamers would have labelled irrational games as left-wing propagandists, which some people did anyway, as it turns out, and make the game lose a big chunk of its potential audience. It was a safe and shallow approach to a very delicate and complex subject matter, but sadly this was the best we could get from AAA in a very risk-averse industry, at least back then. What I will say is there's a lot more discussion on this on the Cana Rinse Forum. It's extremely intelligent and respectful and there are differences of opinion, um, but not uh, not wildly differing ones, just different, uh, subtle, different aspects of similar points that are well worth checking out. And uh, it's a great, actually, it's a great advert for just how brilliant the Cana Rinse community is. In Burial at Sea, Simon Sloth says, uh, episode two, there are some interesting plot threads which offer some insight into Daisy's actions. However, it feels perhaps that these were put in because of the outcry directed at the main game rather than being part of the original narrative. I don't think we will ever know. Meanwhile, Major Gamer says, Fitzroy's redemption, inverted commas, in the DLC felt very reactionary to the outcry. Um, and I think it's fair to give uh, Ken Levine some space here. 
some quotes from that Glixel interview from September 2016. Uh, this was main, mainly in response to the conversations we've just had. Put to him, he says, here's what I'd say. Bioshock 1 is about Jews. I'm a Jew. If you think about it, Andrew Ryan, Sander Cohen, Tenenbaum, they're all Jews. Su Chong is Korean. During World War II, Korea was brutally occupied by Japan. He's a guy who survived. They're all survivors of oppression and they don't come out of it as heroes. Oppression turns them into oppressors. And that's the cruelest aspect of oppression. If you look at Andrew Ryan and Daisy Fitzroy, they're not that far apart. Maybe people want me to wanted me to write about a hero who rose above that. Elizabeth is the character I invented who does sacrifice herself to break the cycle. But I think most people are destroyed by oppression. I could tell a fairy tale about people who are ennobled by it. But in my experience, as a student of history, that's rare. If you pretend there are a lot of happy endings for those stories, in some ways it elevates the oppression to something it's not. I'm not in this to make people feel good about their political beliefs. If anything, I'm there to mostly challenge my own beliefs. The reason Andrew Ryan is a better character than Comstock is I understood the appeal of Andrew Ryan. I don't get the appeal of the Donald Trumps of the world. I don't fear the things he fears. I understood Ryan better. He was a bourgeois Jew during the Bolshevik Revolution. The Bolsheviks came and destroyed his family, destroyed everything in his life. That maps Ayn Rand. She's a refugee who came to America because her family was destroyed by the Bolsheviks. It's not really super surprising she became the person she did. Spider-Man was made by Uncle Ben being shot. Ayn Rand was made by her family being destroyed by the Bolsheviks. I hope if anyone takes anything away from Bioshock, it's about how oppression just goes on and on and on and how ideology can get very muddy once the real world mixes with it. Uh, that would be exactly what I was referring to earlier, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's clear to say that that was uh, or is Ken Levine's perspective. I'm not sure. I think the the problems I had with the um, the the comments above were that I, I'm not sure you can say necessarily that this was the safe middle ground. I think this is actually what, by the sounds of it, Ken Levine wanted to say about uh, this yeah, this so. universe that he, that he created. You mm -hmm. know, he's free to say anything he likes about that. I think the the issue. I have is if you're going to take a both sides position here, uh, which as I've said, there's there's a couple of films I referred to that, that take a, a both sides position, but but manage to do so by telling a personal story that says something about the characters caught in that. And I don't think much is said about Daisy Fitzroy, for example, or Comstock, frankly, that explains where they're coming from in a way that doesn't make them plot points more than characters. So a few quick summaries from contributors. Andrew Brown, unsurprisingly, based on what we've already heard, says Bioshock Infinite is a pretentious mess, convinced it's smarter than it is. As a shooter, it's average. As a science fiction story, it doesn't make sense. As a social commentary, it's racist. As a video game, I hate it. Tadinho says, Bioshock Infinite was a game I wanted to love. It was by far my most anticipated game of 2013. I'd watched every trailer and consumed every snippet of information about the game that I could. When I started the game, I was completely blown away by the intro and visuals. I was fascinated by the world and eager to learn more. But when I finished the game, I couldn't help but feel disappointed. Still, I told myself that it was just the ending I didn't like and that the rest of the game was fine. Then I replayed the game and I disliked it more. Then I replayed the game again and both the combat and characters felt shallow and I disliked the game even more. Then I played the DLCs, and when I finished the second one, I was sure that I hated everything to do with Bioshock Infinite. To be fair, however, this was never meant to be a Bioshock game in the first place. Ken Levine was basically forced to name it that. At best, Infinite is an average shooter with some interesting ideas on the surface and a great visual style, but nothing more. 
Nix Fontana says, Overall, I enjoyed my experience with Bioshock Infinite a lot more this second time around than I did when I played it previously in high school. I'm glad I came back to this game and challenged my previous assumptions now that I am a bit older and more thoughtful about my experiences. However, I feel Bioshock Infinite is not a game I will return to for a third time. Mattenswey says, Columbia wasn't that appealing to me. It looked great, but it, I was turned off by the citizens. They all look the same. How can it be a AAA game in 2013? Fights with the enemies were quite repetitive. The graphics were decent, but not nearly as good as they were in the trailer. The boss fights are memorable because they were unfair and frustrating. I was playing this game for hours and I could not understand why the game received so much praise until I finished it. There is no doubt that Infinite's story is brilliant and unique for a video game or maybe art in general. But there is the point. A good story just doesn't make a good video game for me. I enjoyed Bioshock Infinite, but I didn't have fun playing it. If Ken Levine would pitch Bioshock Infinite to a publisher in 2018, it might turn out to be a four-hour indie walking simulator on PlayStation Plus. Still, Bioshock Infinite has some great content, the DLCs. Finally, we went back to Rapture, and even the stealth gameplay didn't bother me at all. Mechner concludes with I loved Infinite, though I would like to mention I thought the gameplay was more repetitive than that of its predecessors, which makes replaying it more of a chore. It's the endless waves of cookie cutter bad guys and lack of big daddies to break up the combat and gameplay. I thought the stealth in the Burial at Sea DLC was a welcome change of pace and reminded me of Thief, which is not a surprise considering the lineage. How it tied up the series story was very well executed in my opinion and gave me a satisfying ending to the story. I know that many people find the narrative pretentious among much else, but I do truly believe that it dared to try something different and achieved it wholesale. The fact that it exists in the AAA space is unbelievable. And finally, because for all the criticism, I like people to have had a good time. And this was an email we got from Matt Sharawara. Weeks into playing and replaying Bioshock Infinite, I was walking to my nearest subway station. Halfway down the stairs, the song Will the Circle Be Unbroken wormed into my head. Half a minute later, with the song still playing, I burst into tears. At that point in time, my life was happy. Up until that moment, it had mostly been filled with happy moments too. And, knock on wood, I am still a person with much happiness in my life. But that song, tied to the moments, but most importantly the themes of the game, affected me on an almost unexplainable level. And on such a personal level that it caused me to do something few things in life, games, art or otherwise, have been able to do. Bioshock Infinite is an energetic and creative first-person shooter realised in a beautifully animated and designed game world unlike any other I've inhabited, and that alone is enough for me. It's also the story of the city of Columbia, its conception and civil struggle. But on top of all that, it's also a complex and rich story of branching paths, parallel universes and the travel between them, a fate of destiny and responsibility. It feels almost unreal to me that this story exists, the enormity of it, the soul-provoking it causes in me. I'm sure people have found this feeling in great novels, in poems, in all manner of art and life and other games as well. But for me, it was delivered in such an effective way through a highly polished first person shooter on the PlayStation 3. Games often tell you that you or your avatar are important. Important events happen to you or happen around you. This game, more than any other I've played, made me feel important and by its ending, important in the most terrible way. As Booker, I felt deep responsibility for the, what the character had done and what other incarnations of him had done. It made me think about responsibility, about how choices or the lack of them affect not only you, but the world around you, people you know and won't based on things you've done and who you choose to be. The ending for me was exceptional, and this game's impact on me was so great at the time that it not only caused public tears, but also for me to take a break for, from games for close to a year. After playing Bioshock Infinite, it was difficult to find a follow-up title. I'm so glad that this game exists, and I existed at the same time to play it. So there you go. Anachronism corner is that uh, Booker is baptised with the song Will the Circle Be Unbroken playing. 
but the baptism takes place in 1899. The song was written in 1907. But, but let's not worry about that. Three word reviews from Twitter. Follow us at Kane and Rinse. Andrew Brown says, risible, regressive, racist. Ryan Scully says, confused, pretentious mess. Dougie Darko says, infinite, wasted potential. Nicholas Chase, beware, false shepherd. Richard Sims, literally on reels. Uh, Mehmet says, uh, system shot light. Ashton Herman says, mediocre in retrospect. Bucklord, by shockingly confusing ending. Wildest cat ever, violent Disneyland adventure. Phil King says, circle is unbroken. P. Tier says, amazing musical covers. Enter Murillo, better with DLC. And finally, Sam Worms, where's the sequel? Don't think there's going to be one, is it? Eh. No, <laughs> probably not. Okay, uh, brief summaries. Obviously, we've run long. We could talk about this game forever, and many people have. But uh, do, would we actually recommend that people experience it, warts and all, for themselves? Tony? I kind of had a, a bit of a 180 on this game. I, I didn't particularly like it five years ago. Revisiting it now with DLC attached, I think I still stand by my feelings that I, I think Columbia is a, a step down in design for uh, the place for the, the game to be set in a Bioshock universe, uh, in that universe. Um, I think the combat isn't as good as it I would want it to be. And we talked about you know, the lack of uh, interaction with the environment being one of those things. The thing that has improved in, in my time, though, is I found the story more engaging. The, you know, racism aside, which is absolutely there. And I, you know, listening to this discussion has certainly made me to, you know, look at it again. We haven't got into a lot of the actual, you know, elements of the multiverse. And I think the reasons I like this is all the reasons it ties back into the Bioshock universe, because I love those games so much to see how essentially the big daddies were imprinted into the, onto the little sisters um, via Elizabeth herself was fascinating. And essentially Rapture could not exist without Columbia system because they shared technology uh, between the two uh, environments. So Songbird would not exist without Rapture system because the two time periods clash with the tears. Ultimately, with all this stuff, is Elizabeth essentially sacrificed herself, then none of this would exist. None, both, neither of those two worlds would exist because she had the hand in creating both those two worlds. I found the digging of that whole element of how you tie all this stuff together endlessly fascinating, and I will continue to just do that research and watch some videos in it and people that are far more clever and intelligent than me looking at this stuff and explaining it. I think the game has issues all over the place, but I do think the fact that it's a Bioshock game and it starts to interlink all the Bioshocks or all the shock games into a single piece of universe is fascinating to me. And that's the reason I think that it's worth playing if you're a fan of the games, but it definitely has Flaws and even more so in 2018. Mm -hmm. James, there are positive aspects about this game that I probably should be focusing on a little bit more, but it's really tough for me to think about Bioshock Infinite and not think of the kind of paper craft flowers and plastic groceries in Colombia when you first kind of get there. There's an artifice to the appearance and the world of Bioshock Infinite that it just feels like it seeps into the themes of the game in a way that was incredibly undermining and destructive to my appreciation of it. It was like a roller coaster. Uh, I was I was caught up in the ride during it, but in the days after the not not even just 
plot holes, but the final revelations left me feeling like the politics, the science even, and ultimately the narrative were hollow in a way that I just can't get past. That's that's literally my incredibly downbeat uh, take on it, I'm afraid. Fair enough. That's absolutely fine. Josh? I feel like James has pretty much summed up my my feelings on the game. So I'll, I'll use my summary to say that even though my feelings on the game are really messy, there are bits of it that I love, there's a lot that I hate, and I think even though I don't think the intent was to be racist in this, I, I feel like the impact has ultimately been racist with this game. I am awfully glad that Bioshock Infinite exists, though. Like, I think it has um, challenged a lot of assumptions amongst uh, games writers and games creators, and I feel like it has elevated the conversation around games and game design, um, which resulted in some unfortunate business in 2014. But ultimately, I feel like that was worth it. Um, I think it's improved me as a, as an, as a commentator on games. I think um, oh, it forced me... will be the judge to- of that, Josh. <laughs> no, I, think, I feel like it forced me uh, to really examine the part... Examine things that about myself that I didn't like um, and made me hyper aware of my uh, of my privilege as as a white man um, I think uh, reading I, I was I, I, this this game resulted in me reading outside of my usual comfort zone in terms of writers and, and stuff like that and uh, I think it's expanded my worldview and my perspective. So ultimately, I think even though this game is hugely problematic and has loads of issues, um, I think its overall impact on the conversation around games and um, the critical discussion around games has been a net positive, even if the game uh, espouses politics that I don't agree with. Yeah, well said. Uh, I'm going to find this summary quite difficult i've been trying to think how to phrase this really but um if there's one thing that i always want to be when we summarize games on cana rinse it's honest and while we kind of dissect games as something of an intellectual exercise uh, it's also an emotional one um so i'm sort of disappointed to learn that i think based on what everyone else seems to say about the story i'm either highly pretentious or a cretin (laughs) Because I think it's great. <laughs> I really love the story. I acknowledge my white privilege and the fact that I'm, I feel like I'm able to be at least accommodating of what I completely concur is, you know, some at least ill-judged and clumsy stuff, if not, yeah, downright uh, ignorant in terms of the, the politics of the game. I guess, you know, I, I was one of the critics who reviewed it back in 2013 and, and I gave it a, a good score. So I guess I'm also a terrible judge of what a fun game is, but I was expecting to come back to this game and find that I just didn't like it nearly as much this time around, but I did. I really, really enjoyed it. Warts and all, every aspect. I think it's astonishingly ambitious and it falls short of a lot of those ambitions in quite a major way, but that doesn't mean that I didn't feel spectacularly immersed in this incredible world. Now, I still prefer the original Bioshock, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, that's less of a messy 
thing and uh, and more refined. And I will always, you know, focused. Have that as <laughs> one of my favourite games. But I can't deny the fact that I went back to this game, played it for the show, and yeah, enjoyed almost every minute of it. The DLC as well, yeah. It was I can't believe I left it several years to play that stuff. I know because <laughs> uh, because I thoroughly enjoyed that too. I completely agree that it's full of uh, retconning in terms of answering the criticisms of the game, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think it's it's not beautifully handled, but I think at least it's an attempt. As Josh says, I don't think there was. I I think you know. I think the the problematic elements come from a, a place of obtuseness and ignorance rather than of hatred which is a, you know still not a good place but it it may the intent makes a huge amount of difference to me as regards to my overall reception of something and so yeah i still think it's a, a pretty remarkable video game and yeah talking about yeah net net positive like this game has prompted more conversation than just about any game i can think of um over the last five years uh, i'm sure there are others as well but it's it's right up there different kind of conversation um yeah so i would recommend it but absolutely be aware that there may be elements that you find troublesome you may be one of the people who thinks the gameplay is incredibly dull and turgid and low low yeah low ranking first person shooter gameplay or you may be like me and you're uh, and and email a matt sharawara and completely kind of immersed and sucked into this world yeah it's a weird one because I I'm, I never really care about backlashes and other people's perception, but I feel conscious of it in this case that I'm now the contrarian going against this uh, the the critical backlash, but by going along with the original critical appraisal. But there it is. I that is me being as honest as I can be. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank James, Josh and Tony, as well as all of our correspondents, editor Ryan, especially for this one. Thank you. And all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, a lot of work did and does go into everything we do. Please subscribe, rate and review. Best of all, support us with a dollar a month or more if you want. Patreon.com slash Cane and Rinse. And you'll get every new show a week early, as well as that exclusive monthly mini cast. Next time, in issue 311, we emerge from the neon-lit depths and into the actual sunlight. <laughs>